0: Hi, this is Ananda, president of the Hare Krishna community near Washington, D.C. What follows is a Sunday talk recorded at our temple. Every Sunday we invite the public for meditation, a talk, and a vegetarian lunch. We'd love for you to join us. More information is available at iskonofdc.org. That's i s k c o n o f d c . o r g. dot org. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the talk. I'd like to just read a verse from Bhagavad Gita and a little bit of Prabhupada's words and launch from there. Famous verse, in the fourth chapter, 11th verse, yeyata mam prabadyante tangsta taiva bhajamyaham mamavartmanu vantran, mamavartmanu As all surrender unto me, I reward them accordingly. Everyone follows my path in all respects, O son of Pritha. Prabhupada's words. Everyone is searching for Krishna, Prabhupada says in the different aspects of his manifestations. Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God, it is partially realized in his impersonal brahmajyoti effulgence and as the all-pervading super soul dwelling within everything, including the particles of atoms. But Krishna is fully realized only by his pure devotees. Consequently, Krishna is the object of everyone's realization, and thus anyone and everyone is satisfied according to one's desire to have him. In the transcendental world also, Krishna reciprocates with his pure devotees in the transcendental attitude, just as the devotee wants him. One devotee may want Krishna as the supreme master, another as his personal friend, another as his son, and still another as his lover. Krishna rewards all devotees equally according to their different intensities of love for him. In the material world, the same reciprocations of feelings are there, and they are equally exchanged by the Lord with the different types of worshipers. The pure devotees, both here and in the transcendental abode, associate with him in person and are able to render personal service to the Lord, and thus derive transcendental bliss in his loving service. Prabhupada elsewhere states that in every religious tradition, in every spiritual path, there is bhakti. There is the search for love. There are those who seek some absolute and ultimate manifestation of love. When Prabhupada says that there's bhakti in all true religions, in all true spiritual paths, what exactly does he mean? One of the things that we understand about love is it's very rich, it's very diverse, it's, very, uh, it's, a, it's a complex word, such a simple little uh, four-letter word, L-O-V-E. In Sanskrit, there are at least 30 words for our English word love. And that tells you something about Sanskrit literature and Sanskrit poetry. It's obviously, the subject of love is obviously the object of so much discussion and so much expression. Ultimately, It's what's in the human heart that counts in all of our lives. And the great religious traditions have recognized this. Every religious tradition, in some way or fashion, tries to bring its uh, followers into uh, some level of relationship with love. Now, recently I saw a very uh, beautiful video by a Kirtania, female Kirtaniya, uh who lives in England, uh, Jonavi Harrison. And she, like so many devotees, will say that the universal practice in this age is the chanting of the names of the divine. But those names vary tremendously. Uh, in Taoism... There really isn't, per se, a name of the divine that's chanted. The Tao is what is called the highest you know, level of divinity that that tradition understands and respects. There really isn't, for example, in Confucianism, the chanting of the name of the divine. We find this mainly in uh, Uh, Indian traditions, and we find it in the Abrahamic traditions um, uh, of uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. So, really, there is a tendency to want to grasp what is the beloved object, and so it is named. And the very fact that it is named really would work into this idea that the name of the divine is so important, when we name something, we bring it closer to us. We identify it. We find ourselves in relation to it. But the ways in which practitioners relate to the divine will be very, very diverse. Now, in the Chaitanacharthamrita, which many of you are familiar with, We find there, uh, really, what is the great gift of Krishna-bhakti tradition? What is it that is offered here that is not found elsewhere? If bhakti is found everywhere, even in the the sort of slightest forms in certain traditions and, and maybe more obvious forms in other traditions, if bhakti is ubiquitous on some level, then why come here, why not go anywhere? What is special about coming to this place of uh, worship and this place of, of community and fellowship? In the Chaitanya Chattamrita, Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswaman explains in many, many places that in the world of spirituality In the world of religion, in the world of spiritual pursuits, the world seems to be most focused on the amazing, powerful, um, glorious, majestic levels of the divine. This is so well expressed by a 20th century, early 20th century uh, philosopher and theologian in Germany by the name of Rudolf Otto. He described the religious experience of most of the world as mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Can you feel it? Let me tell you it over again. Mysterium tremendum et fascinans. Some of you felt it, I could tell. Others, it just went right by. <laughs> but that's fine. Mysterium tremendum, it's, this is Latin for this, this tr- the tremendous, this tr- the tremendousness, if you could say, the, the, the power and the glory of, of creation and, and beyond that even divinity and so on. And in the Bhagavad Gita, as we all know, the 11th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, out of 18 chapters, 18 chapters, the 11th chapter is where Krishna decides to manifest that mysterium tremendum et fascinans. And th- that is done in the Virata Rupa. And frankly, in that chapter, I-, I mean, he scares the pajabras out of Arjuna. I mean, poor Arjuna is just totally daunted by this display of divine might and power and majesty. And the, the, iron, the, the, the irony is that there was a well-known mid-century uh, scholar at Oxford who produced a translation of the Bhagavad Gita who influenced the Western world to understand and, and, and suppose that it is the 11th chapter that is the conclusive chapter, the climactic chapter. And the rest sort of just peters out the rest of the way. I even uh, had the experience of uh, speaking to people who uh, ran discussions of the Bhagavad Gita online and so on who, who insisted that the 11th chapter is the climactic chapter and the 12th chapter winds up. And I heard one gentleman say, and as far as I'm concerned, we can do away with the last six chapters. Well, if an adult can ever have a temper tantrum, I had one, right then and there. Because that the, the the beauty of the eleventh chapter is not that it's the climactic expression that the, that divine majesty and might. And while this is a very important part of of the experience of the divine, while that is displayed there in the eleventh chapter, it is hardly the conclusive chapter of the Gita. In fact, it's anticlimactic. Arjuna says. Krishna, thank you so much, and I'm putting it in my own colloquial terms. Thank you so much, I'm, I've, I think I've had enough. Can you please come back to your more lovable, intimate form? Which Krishna says, actually, that's even harder to perceive and appreciate, even than the one I've just showed you. So it's actually a chapter showing the might and majesty of God to show that that's not where it's at. But people miss that, why? Christian Das, in so many ways states that the world will be enchanted by divine majesty, by the oneness and the infinity in this, this, this incomprehensible, un, you know, unfathomable divine ocean of existence. He acknowledges that most of the world will be enchanted by that, will be amazed by that and appreciate that. And it's not that he dismisses that. But he says that one who is intimately connected with divine will not give that so much prominence. And that is what the rest of the Gita shows. The, the six chapters that follow the, the 11th chapter, uh, or seven chapters, are, m- m- lead up to the 18th chapter, which, which is an extraordinary declaration and a very, clim- very dramatic, uh, philosophical uh, presentation uh, that supersedes anything that happened in the 11th chapter. But a Western audience seems to miss this. And this was possibly due to R.C. Um, uh, uh introduction to the 11th chapter where he says, this is the climactic message of the Bhagavad Gita. But he couldn't have been more wrong. Krishna explains in the 18th chapter, in the climactic chapter of the Gita, that he is given the great secret, the greater secret, and the greatest secret of all. He gives the greatest secret of all. The the greater secret is definitely acknowledging the divine might and majesty, Brahman and Purusha, no doubt. And the great secret acknowledges this outer world and the Virata Rupa and the way divinity pierces through this physical realm into the most beautiful and pleasurable things in this realm, definitely. He he acknowledges that that's the great secret. The greater secret is the divine majesty which encompasses everything. That's the greater secret. But the greatest secret of all, and this is what is so special about this tradition here and what is veritably displayed right here on these altars, is the intimate loving exchange between the soul and the supreme soul the miraculousness uh, of this capacity for this infinitesimally small being to relate to the infinite being in loving repose. This, this is the gift. This is the great gift. This is something that you cannot find everywhere and anywhere. This is unique. And the Krishna Bhakti tradition as displayed here is what that is all about. Now, when we see the in the central altar here, I was going to possibly bring some uh, paintings, some B.G. Sharma paintings to illustrate this, uh, which can be a whole other talk one day, which we uh, Ananda and I have spoken of, of doing that. But, Uh, But right here on the altar, we have the figures of Radha and Krishna. Right here. Notice that they are standing closely together. Notice that they are gazing outward at us. And notice that Krishna is playing the flute. You see, the great, divine, majest- uh, powerful, and majestic manifestation of reality is understood to be emanating from this little, playful boy with the flute. To the Indian mind, majesty and aishwarya is Epiphenomenal. It's secondary. It's it's important, but not as important to the madhurya, the sweetness, the loving relationship between all beings and between all beings and the supreme. So this relationship is worshipped here. Krishna... Many say, uh, of course, in the Christian tradition, God is love. And we would agree with that Johannine expression. That is to say, the Gospel of John says, God is love. That all love originates from God. Yes, we could not agree more. But we take it further. Love is God. That, I don't know who else says that. Love is God. So while we may say that we come and we worship that intimate divinity of Krishna, we we do, but we worship more than that. We worship him in relation to the supreme goddess of Radha, his equal counterpart, equally divine counterpart, Radha the divine feminine, as Sri Radha. But we don't just stop there. What we really do worship is we worship a relation. We worship a relation. Otherwise, we could just have Krishna standing there. Or we could just have Radha standing there. But we don't. We have Krishna and Radha. We worship a divine relation. We worship their love. We worship the love between Ratha and Krishna. That is supreme love. And in fact, their love becomes so intense that each one wonders about the other's love. Each one is mystified and utterly confounded by the other's love, amazed, by the, that love. And in that amazement, suddenly that is what is wondrous and majestic and powerful. Not the universe, but what goes on between the two of them. Each one cannot even, it's, it's utterly confounding. And the closer they become, the more distance they feel. And, more, and that is the, the origin of separation or viraha. And so there's a, there's a paradox. The closer they come together, the more distance they feel because they, you cannot be close enough to the beloved. There's no way to become close enough in love. And this is true of any relationship we even have here. We have a friend. We want to be closer to that friend in love. We have a a, a mate, companion, we want to be closer to him or her. We have a child, we want to become closer to him or her. We don't place limits on love. Love is something that has endless depths. We experience that even here, what to speak of in the divine. We experience it here because it is experienced in the divine. More about Radha Madan Mohan, or Radha Krishna here. They become so mystified, and their love for one another becomes so intense that Krishna decides he must understand Radha's experience. And any truly sensitive, loving person will always try to empathize with the other. Try to be empathic. Try to understand the experience of the other. And so that is exactly why Krishna takes the form of Chaitanya. And then we move to the altar on the left. Chaitanya is Sri Krishna Chaitanya Radha Krishna Nahayanya. Sri Krishna Chaitanya is none other than Radha Krishna combined. Mahaprabhu Garanga is himself the embodiment of the love between Krishna and Radha in the middle altar. So we have the side altar as a way of worshiping the love that's between the two. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a tradition that does nothing but worship love. I hope you understand that. Now, if you're not into that, I mean, you're free to leave, really. But what ultimately is most important in life is is the loving connections that we all have. On the one hand, Prabhupada will say there's no love in this material world. Very extreme-sounding statement and even counterintuitive. We look around, we see love everywhere. And on the other hand, Prabhupada will have, one time uh, Prabhupada was sitting, and two kittens came right around his feet, playing around at his feet feet, lovingly. And Prabhupada said, just see, there is love everywhere. (laughs) So how do we understand? There's no love anywhere in this material world, and yet love is ubiquitous. How do we understand this? Both are true. Because until we've really established our relationship with the source of love, our capacity to love will be hindered. The whole idea is to develop that relationship. And that's why Prabhupada came here, to develop our relationship with love itself. The love between Rata and Krishna Now, as I think I've said here before at other talks, notice that Krishna is playing his flute when he is with Radha. But the only reason he ever plays his flute is to attract Radha. So the question is, why is he still playing his flute when he is standing here with Radha? Because they decided to call us together. They are calling us. The flute is the symbol. Radha is calling us just as much as Krishna. They are calling us together. They are calling us and waiting for us to call to them. Return the call. That is what the maha mantra is. It is the return call of their call. That's what the Maha Mantra is. Now, we may not fully realize that first, but more and more, as this becomes a kind of natural process, natural practice, we will understand that the Maha Mantra is the sonic replication of their relationship. It is our way of acknowledging that they have been calling us for an eternity, and they have been waiting in eternity for us to acknowledge them. Oh, don't worry, there's no punishment if you don't recognize them and recognize their call. You will not be condemned to a hell. There's no threat, there's no manipulation. There's no uh, coercion. You can't force love, but you can attract the hearts of others. And this we learn from this tradition. So this is Krishna Bhakti. This is what uh, Radha represents. Radha represents the very embodiment of loving devotion. In fact, her name, Radha, means loving worship. That's what her name means. Rad actually means, it's actually a verb in Sanskrit. Rad, R-A-D-H, long A-D-H. Rad means, it's a verb root, which means to worship. So Radha is the essence of worship. She's the essence of loving worship. Some of you have heard the word rod How many of you have heard that? Apparad, right? And we typically translate that as what? Offense. Here's a, a, a more sort of morphologically precise translation. Rad means worship. Appa means away. Away from worship. That is upparad. If, if, um, if, if uh, Sugata comes up to me and, and says something insulting after my class, it's not going to discourage me from worship. In fact, it might even encourage me. But that's because we're old, old friends. But, but the idea is that if something he said were to actually discourage me from my seva, from my devotion, that is a parad. That is what aparad means. It doesn't mean just a, you know, an, an, a, a, sort of a, an insult on the way over to the Prasadam line or something like that. No. Feel free to do that with anyone here. No, I mean, don't do that with anyone here. No, be nice. But aparad really is a very serious thing because it, it, if, if it redirects someone away from developing a loving heart, this is a problem. This is very bad. You get hurt, they get hurt. In bhakti, there is no place for judgmentalism. There is no place for making assumptions about others. There is no place for assessing others or trying to determine levels of purity, levels of devotion or dedication. There's no place for that. There's only a place for interactions, for relating. And that is the meaning of sangha. I think that's for me. Anyway, tell them I'll call them back later people try to get through me to me through other people's phones it's and i'm not paranoid either i'm not really i'm not so to wind up here radha is the emblem of loving krishna there's no greater love in existence you look at radha you are looking at the embodiment of the totality of love. And she's just the love goddess. There's just no other way to put it. And even Krishna is confounded by this. He cannot understand how he can be so loved by this goddess. And the verse that I read, Yayatamam Prabadhyanti Tangstitaiva Bhajamiham. In that verse, Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami in the Chaitanya Charthamita says that Krishna promises to reciprocate whatever love we offer to him. And he does this across the board. The only time he breaks this promise is with Radha. He cannot reciprocate her love. Her love is overwhelming even to him. Therefore, he has to come as Goranga. He has to come as a bhakta to see what it's like to worship him. And even then, he has a lot of problems comprehending it, and we don't have enough time to go into the details of Mahaprabhu's uh, loving exploits. So it's a very special day. Very, very special day. Radhashtami, the day on which we honor the great festival, Mahotsava, great festival of honoring Radha, in Vrindavan is actually more important and more hallowed than Janmashtami. So it is a very special day. So it is technically on Tuesday, but we also celebrate it when most people can come here to the temple. But I think there is a celebration in the evening on Tuesday. And before I ask any, uh, entertain any comments and questions, I want to mention that for the first time in the history of Vaishnavism, in the history of Krishna Bhakti, I mean, it's pretty, uh, I'm an historian, so I, I have a right to say this. For the first time, a book has been produced, Bhakti Blossoms, a collection of contemporary Vaishnavi poetry. 108 Vaishnavis have submitted poems to be printed in here, and never before in the history of the Bhakti movement, for thousands of years, never before has there been a collection of Vaishnavi poetry ever. It's the first time. And it so happens that we know some people here that have contributed, Ananda has contributed, Laura sitting over there, Wave your hand here so we can see who you are. Now, the hand goes up higher, Laura. Okay, anyway. Okay, there you go. And uh, I think there are... And then Rukmini has contributed to it. And... Am I missing anyone else? Uh, anyway, I think that's it from here, and then others from around the world, really. So this book has just been printed, and it's available at the book table, as it's called, which is right over here. right? Anyway... So I'll just stop there and ask if any of you have any comments, any questions, any any comments or questions. In the development of bhakti, there's vaiti bhakti and raganuga bhakti. Can you explain how they are uh, progressive? Yes. Well, in sadhana bhakti, that is to say bhakti in practice, is divided into two. And as you know, Vaidhi bhakti is the discipline of bhakti. Practicing, it's like when you you, uh, take up classical piano, you're having to play the scales. So in bhakti, there's also discipline, practicing certain things according to certain disciplines, and that's very good. Raghunuga bhakti is the stage of sadhana bhakti where it becomes very natural, and you start really loving this process. And it's a stage at which you develop some special attractions to different parts of Krishna's leelas. And you long to enter more and more into those um, uh, sacred acts of love. So it's a very special stage. But even But don't think that they're so black and white you can taste some spontaneity, some attraction that's very deep at the beginning stage. In fact, most people do. It just moves more into that intensified, more spontaneous level, more natural level of practice. So in, in those two stages, of course, your relationship with Radha will, will grow and change and appreciate in certain ways. For example, today you may have heard certain things that you may not understand or appreciate fully, but later they may kick in. That's because of that, that process. Is that, okay? Is that okay? Thank you. Yeah. I, I don't know if you cover this in your class, but the Maha Mantra that we chant and Radha's present in that. Yes. Could you speak a little bit yeah. to that? Yes. Um, I did actually cover this, so you're not a very good student. <laughs> Um, but actually your question is really good because I didn't specify. So, okay, so that now I'm not a very good teacher. So. Okay, so now we'll come together on this, okay? So, so, yes, Radha is there in the name Hara. Now, what's interesting in Sanskrit is that Hare, which is the vocative case, which means calling out, you know, that's like saying, oh, Ananda, trying to get her attention, oh, Ananda. So Hare is the, the inflectional ending for Hara, the feminine divine. However, when Mahaprabhu chants it, in the, in, the, in, the, in the experiencing the position of Radha, he is then calling out to Hari because Hare is shared between the masculine name of the divine hari and the feminine name of the divine hara so sanskrit's very rich that way it can move in either direction for most devotees of course we are chant we're basically saying Ratan and krishna so hare krishna now um in the maha mantra notice that there's a pattern and it's the only mantra that repeats words in it so many times and in a very specific pattern and if you keep chanting it around and around you actually don't know where one mantra begins or where one mantra ends it just keeps going around and around and what is it that goes around and around in the spiritual world? The Ras Mandala that's right as I've concluded in my first book Dance of Divine Love which you've had here uh, about around, it's been around for 12 years But the the, the conclusion in that book is that when the maha mantra is chanted, we are, in effect, sonically replicating the Ras mandala within our hearts. Radha and Krishna and the Ras mandala are the same because, as it is explained in the Chaitanya Charthamita, the gopikas, the many feminine figures that form the circle, are but emotional manifestations of Radha's heart so they're all ratha and krishna duplicates himself multiple times and those are all krishna the reason why krishna's god and you fellows and i are not is because none of us can attend every emotion of our wives have you noticed hey do i have that right gentlemen yeah i think so yeah exactly yeah Okay, good. Now that we got that settled, is that all right, Arnanda? Okay, very good. good. I had a question about Meera. Meera? 16th century? Yeah. yeah. Meera's mm-hmm. love for Krishna was, I don't know, at the same level as Radha or not. Mm. But she was deeply in love with Krishna. Yes. So will you call it devotion for Krishna or love for Krishna? Both. But Radha's love is what? Radha's love towards Krishna is... So you're, you're, you're asking, what is the relationship between, say, Radha and Mirabai? Right. Oh, okay. Well, Mirabai is a great lover of Krishna. And she is focusing uh, on Krishna. She, she uh, of course, her personal life is quite a story as a princess and, and never really uh, connecting with her prince, husband, and so on, and she saw Krishna as her husband. And so that's fine. That is Sringara Rasa. Prabhupada, as I read in here in the in the Gita, that, that this is the, practically the only tradition in the world that talks about these intimate relationships that we can have here, we can have with God. So this is how, what Mira had with, with Krishna. Krishna was more of a prince to her than her prince husband was. So it doesn't... Um, uh, but but in her devotion, she is definitely being nourished by Sri Radha. Everyone, every bhakta is nourished by Sri Radha. You can't have Krishna without Radha or Radha without Krishna. They're, they are inseparable. They are inseparable. All right? Yeah? Okay. Hi. Yes? We, um, I'm not familiar with the Radha. R- Rasa Das, would you explain what that is, please? Oh, the, the Rasa dance? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yes, this is... Well, I explained it in 450 pages. Now I can... Uh, yeah, I see Ananda looking at the clock. Okay, yeah, yeah. There, There's great guidance in that, in that uh, subtle gaze. So... Um, the heart of it, yes. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's the heart of the Vaishnava vision. It is uh, the 10th out of the 12 books of the Bhagavata Purana. In the 10th book, chapters 29 through 33 are five chapters. So it is known as the Ras Lila Panchadyayi, the five chapters devoted to the Rasa dance, the Ras Lila. And this is where the Vraja-gopikas burst out of their homes in autumn to come to Krishna in the forest at night to link arms together in a great circle. And Krishna duplicates himself to each one of the gopis. In real. Well, it's spiritual real. Not like this unreal. Spiritual Real. Are you? No, 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 <laughs> no. This is one thing about which I do not kid. Yeah. In fact, there's not one word kidding in my 450-page book on this. But also in the Bhagavata we have here. You can read the five chapters of the Rasa Rasapanchayati. They are considered the highest vision, the, the greatest lila. Vishnu, Chakravarti, said, "Sarva lila chudamani." It's the crown jewel of all divine acts of God. But again, as I point out, Radha and Krishna here are a kind of distillation of that Ras Mandala, of that dance. So that's happening there and it's happening in the Ras Mandala. Pure joy, pure pure Ananda. Yes. Yes, you will read about it. Yes. (laughs) That's exactly what you'll read about. (laughs) That's what it is. Exactly. Exactly. And the Goswamis have commented on it, and I've translated all of those um, essential points from the Goswamis. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, brought two dear Christian friends to this talk from my childhood. I haven't seen them in 48 years. Oh, wonderful. And they're very uh, committed Christians, and I'm wondering, after hearing your talk, if they're wondering if God is male or female. So Uh, because we're presenting Radha and Krishna, and they're used to uh, relating to the Lord as the Father. Yes. So we're presenting um, something more. Yes. So can you explain the relationship between the masculine side of God and the feminine, how that all relates to God the Father? Yeah. So now I, uh, as you know, Suresh I've done quite a bit of studies of Christian traditions when I was in graduate school. So that was one of my major focuses in comparison to bhakti traditions. Now, there, are, there is in Christian um, uh, traditions some extraordinary expressions of bhakti. I mean, really extraordinary. I have personally you know, read these things, examined these things with scholars and so on. And particularly, say, uh, the, the mystics like John of the Cross, Jan van Roysbroek, Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, and I could go on. We don't have time for that. But basically, these mystics understand some feminine dimension to the Godhead. They do. And I just think it's a matter of delving deeply into the relationship with the divine where at some point you just come across the divine feminine. You're just going to. And it's the same if you were to worship the divine feminine only, which you can do, by the way, in India. That is that is done: uh, Durga uh, puja, um, Kali, right? Kali Ma, so on. Um, again, the the when when intimacy with the divine matures and deepens, then the two come into 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 the foreground. But you know, there's there's. We are, no one should tell another person what is it that they love, who they love, what they are loving. When we have no right to go and say, oh, that father, God the father, oh, that is Krishna. Really, be careful. We have no right to say what another person loves. Rather, we should do as St. Augustine, who asks in his famous confessions... What do I love when I love my God? That is what we need to ask persons of other traditions and other faiths. So what is it that you love when you love your God? And let that be revealed more and more to all of us as we move on. Let you share what the divine feminine and divine masculine is from your tradition to to those dear friends of yours. Who knows, in that dialogue, that could bring out more of the feminine aspect in their Christian tradition, which is there. It's there. Hey, look, the the great Christian mystics go to the Hebrew Bible for the Song of Solomon to understand the divine feminine and the divine masculine. It's there. But I'm not here to say what's there for them. Is that all right? So we've talked a lot about this great love that Radha has for Krishna. So if he has the greatest love... What is he longing for from us? And what is our position and, and um, our relation? And how, mm. do we, and how do we grow that? Yes, okay. Wonderful, wonderful. In the Gita, I have counted at least 22 places in the course of Krishna's conversation with Arjuna, at least 22 places where Krishna is preoccupied with the idea of souls coming to him. Now, you know, if I say uh, something to preme non de and I say something once, well, that means it's obviously a little important, right? If I say it twice, it's pretty important. It's, I said it twice. I say it three times, I, I would say that's pretty insistent. Four times, I would probably sound like a nag. Five times. 22 times within the course of a single conversation. Krishna speaks one way or another about souls coming to him. Why? Ishto sime You are so much loved by me, Krishna says. I desire you. Ishta. Ishta is a word. Remember I said 30 words in Sanskrit for love, right? This word ishta is a sense of longing, desired love. I, I, I want you to come closer to me. And he explains throughout the Gita all these different ways in which we can become closer to me. The famous verse, patram pushpam palam Toyam," offering a fruit, a flower, a leaf, and so on, water. By such an offering, I can bring you nearer to me, Krishna says. So in love, it's always about greater and greater levels of closeness and intensity of love, appropriate and relative to that relationship. So that's what Krishna's doing. He wants our love, even though he's got Radha right by his side. Does he need anything else? No. Yes. No. Yes. No, I don't don't have enough time to continue along this line. Does this make sense? It's in the Gita. It's there. It's that kind of subtle subtext that's going around all those, you know, very formal teachings. But it's there for all of us. Is that okay? Yeah. Uh, You said before that Krishna. He put himself in a position to understand the love that comes from Radha. Mm -hmm. Divine empathy. Yes. Now, my question is this, and it's been driving me nuts since I started reading Bhagavad Gita. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to hear this. (laughs) If Radha is an expansion of Krishna, how he put himself in a position to try to understand something that came from him? Do you have kids? <laughs> I, have, I, mean, I have kids, but I made it with someone. Krishna is expanding himself to Radha. Different. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, it's quite all right. No, this is good. This is good. In the Chaitanya Radha and Krishna are one and the same. They're explained as one and the same, but they're also explained as totally discrete. Different beings, at the same time. So it's not like Krishna merely expanded Radha, and that's not quite the right idea. They they are self-existent. So when you read the the fourth chapter of the Adi Lila, that's really where all this is explicated in extraordinary detail and. Beautiful, beautiful verses there on this. But therein, it is explained that they are one and the same. See, when you say you worship Krishna, you're, you, you don't. You worship Radha Krishna. You just didn't say Radha, that's all. It's impossible to say Krishna without referring to Radha. It's impossible. It's impossible to, to refer to Radha and not refer to Krishna. because the divine feminine seemed to dwarf the divine masculine in his capacity to love. Hey, guys, I'm just repeating the Shastra here, okay? <laughs> okay, I'm just, okay, I'm the messenger. <laughs> and so he just was, the, like, a, like a Krishna Das Kaviraj Goswami said, he is the only place where Krishna breaks his promise in the Gita. where he promises to reciprocate the love of his devotee, and he does everywhere. But when it comes to Radha, he he doesn't know how to do it. So he has to, and the key phrase here is rasika shekara. I don't want to get too technical, but you'll see this key phrase, rasika shekara, which means the one who is the connoisseur, the supreme, uh, uh, how do you translate this? The, the uh, Prabhupada will translate it as uh, the, the, the supreme enjoyer of loving exchanges. But that, uh, anyway, it's... it's um, uh, yeah, just keep it rustic and shape. <laughs> anyway, the point is that, that Krishna needs to understand supremely her love. Because he's supposed to be the supreme. So he has to keep that status. So he has to take the form of Mahaprabhu Garanga. And that's why we buy, otherwise we could do away with the other altars, just, just have Radha and Krishna there. But but it's not just Radha and Krishna that we honor and love and worship and, and are so attracted to. It's the love between them. If you, if you examine Jiva Goswami's a uh, whole kind of geometry of the spiritual world in the Brahma Samhita. You have all these ge- g- this geometry and, and envelopes, and it moves toward the center, and then Rata and Krishna are right at the center, and between them, the, the Kama Bija, clean. That's what we worship the love between Rata and Krishna not just Rata and Krishna. Don't let your eyes get stuck on one or the other, but both at the same time as their love just explodes. Then that's Mahaprabhu. So I don't know if I took care of your... I think you're going to still have problems. But that's your problem, problem. not mine. (laughs) Thank you, Garuda. Garuda for...